This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to 15-Minute History. My name is Augusta Lomo. I'm a graduate student at the University of Texas at Austin, and I'm excited to be here with my professor, Tatiana Lichtenstein, who's in the History Department at UT. She's part of the Normandy Scholar Program in World War II since 2014, and she focuses on minorities, nationalism, war and genocide in Eastern Europe in the 20th century. So today we're going to be talking about Zionism and Czechoslovakia, so I'm so glad to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Tatiana, let's start with how would you define Zionism? Well, I think Zionism is best thought of as um, a Jewish nationalist movement uh, that emerges in Europe in the late 19th century. Um, if Jews have traditionally been thought of as a religious civilization, um, defined by Judaism, right, by their difference in religion, Zionists really thought of... Um, a Jewish nationalist and Zionists thought of uh, Jews as a national community, as a nation, a nation that shared a historical language, um, a unique territory, the land of Israel, as you mentioned, um, a unique culture, um, and also um, an ethnicity, right, a, sort of a biological component as well. Um, so within this broader umbrella of Jewish nationalism, Zionism is one of these movements that starts to thinking about Jews not as a religious civilization alone, but actually as a national community. Okay, so and where and when does Zionism emerge? So Zionism emerges in, in um, East Central Europe in the late 19th century. Um, Jewish, often Theodor Herzl, who was a Viennese um, journalist, is thought of as the founder of Zionism. He organized the first Zionist Congress in 1897 um, in Switzerland, but... Um, there were actually what you could call proto-Zionist groups already, people who um, wanted to return Jews to the land of Israel in the Russian Empire in the 1880s. So smaller groups of um, settlers, who young people who went to the land of Israel and started working in agriculture and so on to sort of renew the Jewish people there. But um, the Zionist movement as an organized movement really emerges with these congresses in, in 1897 and then going forward in Central Europe. And has Zionism, just based on that, has it always been a kind of transnational movement or were there distinctive national movements that were separate from kind of the overarching Zionism? Yeah, that about? that's a really good question. It has always been a transnational movement because the Jews are the diaspora people. They were spread over the large empires of Europe by then already also in the New World, right, um, in Western Europe and so on. And there were Zionist uh, groupings in all these small towns, big cities, uh, and the Congress that... The rehearsal organized in 1897 and then happened every two years was meant to bring all these groups together, this international um, community of activists and thinkers and writers together to talk about the priorities, to kind of govern the Zionists, kind of almost becoming like a government of the Jewish nation. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And so how does World War I change the possibilities for Zionists in Eastern Europe and elsewhere? So it does that in a couple of ways. Um, First of all, the land of Israel, um, uh, of the territory of Palestine, changes hands from the Ottoman authorities to the British. 
And uh, Herzl had lobbied the Ottomans to allow for more Jewish settlement in uh, Palestine when they were in control of that territory, but hadn't met with a lot of success. Um, that didn't prevent Zionist, um, Zionist organization of actually creating settlements in the land of Israel, um, you know, to, to buy up land and so on, but they didn't get the Ottoman authority support for this. And when the British take over the territory in 1917, and later after the war, they get the, the, the Palestine mandate, um, there really is an, a possibility, an opportunity, it looks like, for the British to appear as if they want to support Jewish settlement. Um, so, so the idea of creating a Jewish national society in Palestine actually becomes more of a, uh, seems like a possibility, because now the imperial authorities um, look as if they're favorably inclined. Um, so that's that's one aspect. The other uh, important ways in which World War One um, changes and and trans or challenges the Zionist movement is that the largest kind of body of Jews, if you will, the largest Jewish community, was in the Russian Empire. And with the Bolshevik Revolution and World War One, of course, the Russian Empire changes form radically. Not only does it become a Soviet state, um, but parts of that community are now in other nation states in the new countries uh, that make up Eastern Europe the new Poland, Czechoslovakia, and so on. Um, and the Soviet state really promises, of course, emancipation for the minorities and really transforms the basis for Jewish life in the Russian Empire, in Russia. Transform it's the legally, um, discrimination is done away with um, officially, and it really opens up new social opportunities for Jews. And that was actually one of the big kind of, if you will, reservoirs of as the Zionists would say, human material that they were hoping to have immigrate to the land of Israel. But now suddenly it looks like there's actually reason for these Jews to really stay. Um, and of course, Russia had been the source of mass immigration uh, to the West, right? The American Jewish community or North American Jewish community uh, really receive, like, grow a lot from that immigration. And Zionists were hoping that those Jews were the ones that would come to the land of Israel. But now there is it seems a new possibility, a challenge to Zionism, a solution to Jews' poverty, to the discrimination against Jews, and so on. The other, the third reason I would say that's very important is um, the breakup of the multinational empires and the establishment of aspiring nation-states in Eastern Europe. And it's important to remember that the vast majority of Jews live in Eastern Europe. The majority of those Jews live in Poland. And so nationalism gets a kind of a, a uh, gets new legitimacy as political movement, as state-building movements. Um, at the same time, the Allies are concerned about making sure that these nation-states respect the rights of minorities, so different kinds of provisions are made to respect their right to schools in their own language, um, to have uh, state resources funneled to social welfare organizations and cultural organizations. Um, so nationalism not just as a nation state but also national minorities as being legitimate entities within these states um it's kind of redefined and, and gets new uh, a new dynamic in the interwar period or after world war 1 and this is why zionism really emerges in the political state in a stage in czechoslovakia after world war 1 um because <clears throat> now they are one of this country's national minorities and that state, a democratic state, is committed to respecting the rights of its national minorities. So there's really an opportunity for Zionists 
to come in and say Jews are like the Germans, like the Hungarians, like the Czechs, a nation that has rights um, as well as responsibilities, of course, also as citizens of the new state. So them having a stake in this new state, does that, it sounds like it could have made Zionism less popular. How does that change, you know, how popular Zionism was in the Jewish community during this period? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. It's one that's very hard to answer. How do I measure the popularity of Zionism? First and foremost, right after the war, in the course of the war and right after the war, what many Jews were concerned with, and this is in the context of displacement of millions of Jews within the Russian Empire, but also elsewhere. Like, there's really a massive refugee crisis among Eastern European Jews during and after uh, World War I. And as the Austrian-Hungarian Empire collapses and um, Czechoslovak independence is declared in October of 1918, anti-Jewish violence, anti-Jewish rhetoric really uh, escalates in Bohemia and Moravia as well, as it had already in Poland as it had, uh, you know, in other places. Um, and Jews are really concerned about this and what authorities are going to intervene. Um, and Zionists really very kind of boldly and courageously, I think, insert themselves into the negotiations with the new authorities and try and convince them to restrain, to crack down the violence and restrain the incitement to violence against Jews. Um, and they do that by saying that this is really in the interest of the new Czech leadership to show that they know how to govern, that they can run a stable country, and that they're going to be part of a reliable part of the new order in Europe. Right. So, and how would you, what is this process of petitioning the imperial authorities? How does mm -hmm. Zionism, how do they work with the British? How do they, do they subvert that relationship at all? What is that dynamic like, and what mm -hmm. are they advocating for? Well, um, so Zionists, um, so in Palestine, there is a Zionist leadership, that's the Jewish leadership in Palestine, so the, leading the Jewish community. Um, and what they were hoping for was that the British would um, support Jewish immigration to Palestine, as well as allow for public resources to be used to settle and integrate these uh, new emigres to the country, um, the Jewish settlement. But the British got uh, quite quickly alerted to uh, Palestinian opposition to uh, the influx of um, uh, Jewish immigrants and kind of backtracked on the earlier sort of forthcoming promises about uh, encouraging Jewish immigration. But the British were interested in um, the kinds of development that Jewish immigration and Jewish investments could bring to the territory. And that's one of the th big aspects of Zionist activism is, of course, fundraising to build, to buy land and build settlements in Palestine. That's a lot of Zionist activism in the diaspora. It's actually to collect money to then send to, to Palestine to buy land and settle Jews in that land. But the tension between the two communities really is what the British are negotiating in the 20s and 30s. And Jewish immigration is sort of, um, because of the closure of American immigration, this is, becomes one of the destinations the Jews actually can go. Uh, but in the 20s, it's very, very hard for immigrants to make a life there. It is very harsh conditions. Um, and some years, more people leave Palestine than come in in terms of Jewish immigrants. But it's really in the 1930s, especially with the German-Jewish immigration after the Hitler comes to power, that the Jewish population of Palestine grows immensely. And that's, of course, also when tensions escalate, when the British end up uh, restricting Jewish immigration. 
So what is... Um, the Zionism movement look like in Czechoslovakia, both in the interwar period mm-hmm. and moving into kind of the long-term impact of Zionism in Czechoslovakia, mm-hmm. which is where you focus your yeah. research. Yeah. So um, very much when uh, Zionism first emerged as an organized movement in 1897 going forward, some Jews from Bohemian Arabia were at that first Congress and they established, um, you know, local chapters, local Zionist groups uh, in their small towns or in their cities already in the 1890s, and some of the first organizations that I actually created are gymnastics organizations. Because there was this aspiration within the Zionist movement that this national awakening would create a new kind of Jew. And part of that was very much the kind of the physical and mental discipline and uh, transformation that physical activity and gymnastics and, and later sports could provide. Um, it's also a place that really builds community, um, uh, builds those social bonds that nationalists think are very important um, for nations to kind of, um, you know, share loyalties and share interests. Um, so they exist before World War One as well. But it's really, again, when, Czechos- when the empire falls apart, the Austria-Hungary and the Czechoslovak authorities um, kind of take over, that Zionists begin to gain a political role. And they do that with this lobbying to restrict anti-Jewish violence. And they do it um, by addressing, um, by sort of convincing the Czech leaders that Zionist leaders abroad, especially in the United States, that they kind of have their eye on the Czechs, right? That they're watching to see how they're going to handle anti-Semitism, how they're going to handle Jews. And important Zionists, the Bohemian Zionists claim, are going to influence Wilson. They're going to influence the American administration uh, and the international public audience pro or against Czechoslovakia, who's at this time negotiating their boundaries and their conditions for this new state in Paris. Um, So they really sort of try and address the Czechs on a local level, but also by sort of alerting them to the potential alleged power of the Zionist movement. And of course, this draws on longstanding ideas about Jews and international power. So they kind of play with those ideas to alert the Czechs That's to the what I was importance. Going to ask. How accurate is that? You know, this dynamic that they're talking about could, that could potentially exist. So, th- so that is it's very much um, drawing on or exploiting. I would say the uncertainty of Czechs as to how important this power was. Like that was in some ways what was most useful about this image of international Jewish world power because it's what is so interesting about World War One is World War One with the mass displacements of Jews, uh, with the anti-Jewish violence that is on a scale that is completely unprecedented. Um, in the, during the Russian Civil Wars, estimates run somewhere between 80 and 250,000 Jews that are murdered in anti-Jewish violence. And aside from this, of course, the displacements, the um, exposure that people uh, have to disease and poverty and so on when, when this happens, this was a time where Jewish powerlessness was actually really on display. And it was in the newspapers, um, you know, Jews in the West collected lots and lots of money to help Jews who were really at the mercy of these shifting militias and armies in Eastern Europe, on the Eastern Front. At the same time, the idea that Jews have a world organization, some kind of world power, that there's an international network of very wealthy Jews, but also revolutionary Jews, that idea at the same time also grows. So it's kind of this paradoxical situation of of evidence of Jewish powerlessness, but the idea of Jewish power is on the rise. Um, and that comes, of course, with, with respect, but certainly most with fear and hatred. 
Um, so the Czechs were uncertain about the cloud of Jews in the West. They weren't sure, but they were not going to necessarily alienate what could be a potential ally if they didn't have to. And this is actually a strategy the Zionists generally use um, when they're trying to kind of address authority because they don't really have, you know, tangible power. Um, but it's certainly something on the local level that uh, the Zionist activists that I study in Prague very much try to utilize to kind of alert the Czechs to the dangers that, you know, turning this great power against them would do. Um, and in many ways, I think it's sort of a strategy of people who don't really have anything else to bargain with, right? That they were trying to simply say, this is in your self-interest. Uh, protect, no, protect the Jews in your territory. And so what happens to these activists during and after World War II? How does this dynamic shift? Mm-hmm. So um, the activists that start out, it's actually a very small group of mostly men. Uh, they're mostly based in Prague, um, who who do a lot of the, the lobbying with the government and continuously work with the government to shape the what becomes the Czechoslovak state's policy towards its Jews. Um, many of them are very much committed to, and that's sort of one of the things that uh, my book really shows, is that um, these Zionists are very supportive of building a Jewish society, a Jewish state in Palestine. They fundraise uh, um, continuously through the 20s and 30s, they travel to Palestine, they participate in the congresses, they um, spend a lot and lot of energy of uh, raising awareness and also, again, fundraising for um, for the movement or for building this Jewish society. But at the same time, they're equally committed, if not more, certainly for themselves, um, to create a um, Jewish national community in Czechoslovakia that really prospers, that really saw this multinational state, a state that um, supported its minorities with public resources for their schools, the most important national institutions where children learn what it means to be German or Jewish or Czech, Um, public resources for these national institutions um, where there were provisions for um, uh, minority language, um, for representation and so on. Um, they really saw this as a unique opportunity to create a, a thriving national community in the diaspora. So where they already lived, where they were already at home. Um, so they had multiple projects uh, at the same time, and to them they were not mutually exclusive. But it did create tension. One of the tensions that they create was that ideally young Zionists who were raised in the sports clubs, in the Jewish schools and so on, um, One might think that the ideal for them would be to then immigrate to Palestine, help build this new society. But some of the Zionists were concerned about this because for them, those were precisely the future of their nation in Czechoslovakia. These were the young people who were going to be the leaders of their community. Um, So there was kind of tension uh, between these aspirations sometimes. Um, so it's kind of a stable group of, um, you know, middle-class men who, who run the organization and who organize young people, women as well, are very prominent in the sports and uh, youth movements. And it's not, it's only with, um, the, the tensions rising with the Nazis, you know, taking over Sudetenland and eventually occupying the rest of Bohemia and Moravia in uh, March of 39 
that these men and women who are organized Zionists uh, begin to leave. Um, some of them leave for Palestine. They get special visas because they are because plugged into the Zionist movement. Um, so they get visas to go to Palestine. Some go to England. Um, others go to neighboring countries like Hungary, but also France. Um, and many stay too. Um, they had families, they had homes, um, or they couldn't leave, or they didn't want to leave. Um, and some of these, um, and this is some of the more interesting findings, was actually how important some of these activists became um, in um, representing and leading the Jewish community during the Nazi occupation. And it, for many of them uh, who managed to survive to the end of the war, they nevertheless sort of uh, succumbed to the stress of those years later on. Um, but during the war, when Czechoslovakia has a government in exile in London, um, the Zionist movement has a representative on, on that committee. That was not something that, was, that happened right away. Some pressure had to be applied. Again, thinking about Jewish, the you know, importance of the international Jewish community, those arguments were relaunched um, in order to ensure that the Zionist movement got a representative in the government of exile. And they did. And um, his name is Arnold Frischer. And he returns to Czechoslovakia after World War II um, and to lead the Jewish community. But of course, by then it's obvious that what had been um, a promising community from a Zionist perspective in terms of building a national community, that only remnants existed. They established some Zionist organizations. First and foremost, they're trying to establish, reestablish a Jewish community. Um, but with the political developments, uh, these activists end up leaving very quickly. Um, they leave the country uh, either for England or for Palestine or whether it becomes the state of Israel. Right. And when thinking about this relationship between Jews and the state, how did Zionists conceptualize the nation state based on what you were looking at? Is that relationship any different from these other conceptions of the nation state that are going on at the same time? Mm -hmm. Well, I think so. One of the things that's so interesting about the interwar period is that the dominant nations, right? So in, in Czechoslovakia, the Czechs or the so-called Czechoslovaks, but that was Really, everyone knew that was a fiction. But so the Czechs were the dominant group there. In Poland, of course, it's Poles. Um, they really had this very strong um, ideology, right? That this territory belongs historically and presently most to them. But they had to deal with the reality of uh, populations that were very diverse, that have very large minorities, uh, and minorities that had a sense of themselves as a co kind of coherent group. Um, or certainly shared uh, characteristics, most often either language or religion, that set them apart from, from other groups in the territory. And the way this has been studied, and there was certainly lots of this, there was lots of really um, very sort of explicit efforts to make sure, for instance, that Czechs and Slovaks became the dominant groups. There were land reforms that undermined Germans and Hungarian, and actually also Jewish landowners or managers. Um, there were... Um, privileges of people were giving priority who were Czech speakers in the public administration, everything from like the rail master, postman, up until various bureaucrats in the ministries in Prague. Um, there were demands of people being able to master the new state language. That was a major transformation that official language had been first and foremost German, even though Czech had had some uh, status as well. Now everyone had to master these two languages. That was a major challenge for people. Um, 
So there were these ways that minorities certainly felt and could provide evidence they were being discriminated against. But the states were also interested in stability, in economic and social stability, and especially in sort of solidifying the borderlands. So they also offered opportunities in which to bring minorities on board. And that's really one of the things I found with, with my work, that the, many of the Czech bureaucrats go kind of beyond the legislation. They didn't have to, you know, technically Jews were not large enough in numbers to be awarded funding, but they do it nevertheless because they can see it makes political sense to have the Zionists on board and ensure that they sort of remain patriots. Um, so they created opportunities for minorities to really become, um, as you said, have a stake in, in creating a strong new state, right? And ensuring that there is stability, that they are loyal citizens and that they perform their loyalty to, you know, obeying the laws, military service, all these kind of priorities that interwar East European states have. Mm-hmm. So when thinking about Zionism and the state, why is it important to study Zionism specifically and minority nationalism mm-hmm. generally? Well, I think that um, maybe two sort of ways of thinking about this. I think it's important, so from a Jewish history perspective, and especially for East European Jews, um, the First and Second World War really sort of dominate um, the way we think about what Jews' lives were like, uh, what the possibilities for minorities were in Europe during uh, the 20th century. Um, these massive episodes of violence, and of course they are catastrophic, uh, there's no doubt about it, but they tend to kind of cover up um, the ways in which Jews actually work to um, create lives for themselves in Europe and how they try to transform their identities and communities, not just in ways that would enable them to live um, prosperously, but also in peace with their neighbors, but really transform their communities in a way that made sense to them, that they wanted to identify with, that there was something that was um, meaningful to them. And because the interwar period is sort of has these bookends of disastrous wars, uh, where Jews are particularly targeted, um, we tend to forget those 20 years in between where there was actually a lot of innovation and creativity happening in Jewish life. So I think that's, so studying Zionism here, and especially the perspective that I have found, which is that this is really a very diverse movement. It's traditionally broken into political Zionists and cultural Zionists, but this is much more diverse. These activists are really plugged into the local political and cultural environment. They learn from and they cooperate with non-Jews who are also nationalists. Um, They compete with them, but they also cooperate and learn from them. And that local perspective is important as are these international congresses that lay out the priorities for the movement as a whole. So thinking about the Zionist movement as actually one that had different priorities and pursued multiple political projects at the same time, especially at this kind of local level, um, I think that really adds a new dimension to, to Zionist because sometimes it seems they're presented, these activists, as you know, you, kind of utopian, right? That they wanted to create a Jewish society in Palestine. Now, that looked a lot more realistic with the British, but nevertheless, and then there's the sense, you know, they never went, right? They, why didn't they go themselves? They really want to build this Jewish society. But when you actually look at what the different projects were that they had, you can see that their politics and their actions made a lot more sense because they had the Palestine project, but they also, in my case, had the Czechoslovak project. And they were really trying to to integrate themselves into the places where 
their families had lived for generations and where they wanted to stay. Thank you, Tatiana, for being here. This has been another episode of 15-Minute History. Thank you so much for listening. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the iTunes U app for iOS or the Tunes Viewer app for Android. You can also access the 10 most recent episodes through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive editor is Joan Newberger, and our technical editor is Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services, Jacob Weiss, Morgan Honecker, Will Kurtzner, Samantha Skinner, and Michael Heidenreich. Special thanks also to Michael DeLeon, iTunes U Site Administrator with Project 2021 and Educational Innovation. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.